This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship Summer Leadership Training back in 2019. The theme that summer was typology, studying the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. Pastor Matt Harima gives a brief overview of the complex story of Job and what it has to tell us about suffering, God, and Jesus. We hope you find this encouraging. So I'm here tonight to talk to you about the subject of job. And since you are mostly college students, this is going to be about how to find a career according to these... Job, the book of Job. And that is my one joke for the evening. So I have, I have four children, so that was my dad joke. If you could actually find your Bible, find, first step one, find, find your Bible, and step two, open to the book of Job. And the way, if, you, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, the way I always say it is if you take your Bible and you cut to the center, you're going to hit the Psalms probably. Job is the book right before that. So find the Psalms, turn left, all right? Um, I've been given, uh, first I want to say, you guys, uh, this summer topic, I'm so excited about this subject of typology. I have, to, I have to say, whoever put this together, typology is one of those, like, super nerdy subjects uh, when it comes to theology. It's like master's level biblical exegesis type stuff. There are guys in seminary who don't know about typology yet, and you guys get to actually experience it a little bit here this summer. That's really wonderful. And Dan gave a good overview of what typology is last week. I listened to his, his message, um, and basically the idea is typology is one of the ways that we uh, see how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. One of the ways that, um, as Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, he said, you search the Scriptures in vain because you think that in them you have eternal life, but you miss this point that they speak about me. So the Pharisees were opening this book and trying to do everything that it said, but Jesus said, you're missing the whole point. The point is me. And then on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus rose from the dead, he met up with his disciples. His disciples didn't recognize him. I don't know how that worked if he had like a cloaking device on or a mask or something, maybe just a hood. I, you know, but he was saying, you know, what are you talking about? And, uh, you know, they were talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And he said, well, don't you recognize that, like, according to the Scriptures, this is what had to happen? And, and it says, from, and then beginning with the law and the prophets, meaning the beginning of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, he explained to them everything concerning himself. And Dan said last week correctly that this whole book talks about Jesus. Typology is one of the ways we know that. And what typology is, is uh, I'm going to give you two concepts real quick, and then we're going to get into Job. You have what's called a type and an anti-type. So in the Old Testament, anytime you have a hero or a main character, almost, I should say almost any time, you have somebody who's lifted up as a hero of the situation. There are things about that character in the Bible that point forward to Jesus. And we're going to see how that works with Job here in a little bit. And uh, the, the things about him that remind you of Jesus are the things that make him a type of Jesus. And Jesus is the anti-type, or the, the, he replaces the type. Anti means replacement. Um, so it comes in place of. So the, the, the Old Testament figure, Job, has some things about him that remind us of Christ, but then Christ comes in and points us to the real thing. Okay. And, and one of the important points about, you don't have to remember any of that, by the way. The important point is that this is one of the, one of the ways that we see that God has designed the Bible. The Bible was written over, the, over thousands of years by dozens of different authors. 
in multiple different life situations. Some of them were high priests. Some of them were shepherds. Some of them were fishermen. And everything in between, kings and prophets, everything in between. Written by many, many different people from many, many different places, from many, many different walks of life. But we also say that the scripture sounds the same. We read one book by one author, and it sounds like it's saying very similar things as a book by another author. And one of the things that it does is every time it brings up a hero, there are things about that character that remind us about Jesus. And that's what typology is about. We say that these figures that we're talking about are types of Christ. They're like a, they're, they're, so that's what we're talking about with typology. And I just wanted to explain that a little bit at the very beginning here. I want to tell you that this book of Job, uh, I have about 40 minutes. I'm going to take probably 50, maybe, yeah, 50. And um, to go through 42 chapters of the Bible. So buckle up. Now, of course, 50 minutes is going to be totally insufficient for 42 chapters. But what I want to give you here, and, and I think you were given a handout on the way in at some point or at the welcome table, and if you didn't get that, um, just take a look at that. I'm, I'm not going to reference it while we go. There's no fill in the blank or anything like this. But think of this as like an introductory uh, page. It's got a, if you're into theater, it's got a dramatis persona on it, who's who in the Bible, or who's who in the book of Job. It tells you about the characters, who they are, what role they play, and things like that. Okay, um, And my goal here tonight is to give you an overview and some rails to run on the next time you study the book of Job. Because I don't know about you, but my experience with Job, even prior to studying for this message, uh, I first constructed this for Stonebrook about five years ago, and then I did it, you know, I kind of refaced it for Faith Walkers, and then for this time I, I added some things in to kind of show the typology a little more clearly. Prior to studying that, though, my experience with the book of Job was that it was very long and very confusing. Is anybody else with me on that? I mean, and, and it would be interesting to know, I think in this room we'd have a mix. Probably quite a few of you have not really even bothered to read the book of Job. I, if, if I know my church and I guess at this church, I just wanted to say if you've never bothered to read the book of Job, that's okay. It's intimidating. But what I hope is that you actually start reading it, and I'm hoping to give you some guide rails for that. What I want to do tonight is I want to try to give you um, uh, an overview and orient you to the book's structure. I want to talk about its major themes, and I want to show you how it points forward to Jesus so that the next time you uh, go to study this book, you have some starting points, a seedbed, some, some scaffolding to do your study, all right? So let's pray together here to get started. Father, thank you for the music, thank you for the prayers, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to see clearly, help us to hear from you clearly, from your words. Lord, help my brothers and sisters and other guests here tonight to hear your words from the scriptures. Help the things I say in addition to those words be useful tools for understanding your word. Help us all here to be like the Bereans who searched the scriptures to see if the things Matt Harima was saying are true or not. Help these people to not take my word for it, but to trust you in it. Lord, show us truth. Thank you for it. Guide us tonight. Help us to be awake. Help us to be alert. Help us to be attentive. Help us to grasp what you're trying to say to us through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I find interesting, we don't know an exact date 
on the book of Job. But uh, due to the, the way it's written, the things that are mentioned in it, um, it's most likely, this book is most likely the first scripture that the Hebrews had. So if you're, if you're familiar with like, do you understand that this book was originally like a collection of different letters and scrolls and things like that? It wasn't, we didn't get it this way. It was a kind of a, a library of different writings. One of the first pieces that we had from the Lord, inspired words of God, is most likely this book. That's an opinion. Uh, we don't know that for sure. We don't know an exact dating, but some of the references it made makes and the way it talks about some of the aspects of, of what Abraham did, or sorry, what Job did to uh, worship the Lord seem to place it shortly after the life of Abraham, maybe just a few generations after Abraham, and, and before Moses, and before the Exodus, possibly even. Um, and definitely before the writing of the Pentateuch. So what's interesting about that fact, that it's probably one of the first pieces of Scripture ever written, is the theme of the book. The first revelation that man had from God in writing were about the themes of God's holiness, His power, His glory, and man's situation in suffering. The oldest and most persistent question that humanity has, the problem of pain. There's a book by Lewis out on the table out there. The problem of pain and suffering in the world is, in this one sense, maybe the very first question the Scriptures actually address if you're going chronologically. I think that's interesting. And what's also interesting about that, even if that's not true, it doesn't change my premise for today, the way that the Scripture goes about answering the question of this problem of pain and suffering, and maybe very broadly, why do bad things happen to good people? The way the Scripture goes about answering that question, the thing that God tells us in response to that question is not a short, canned, three-bullet-point answer or a postcard or coffee cup verse or a Facebook meme or a motivational poster. God doesn't give us like three simple statements. Well, the reason pain and suffering happens in the world is blank. He doesn't give us that. What he gives us instead is a 42-chapter epic poem. And I think that's important. I think that we are meant to take the book of Job and live in it. Do you know how long it takes to read through 42 chapters in one sitting? Hours. It takes hours to read through the book of Job in one sitting. And I think we're supposed to do that. I think we're meant to construct our lives such that we have time from time to time to sit for hours in the book of Job. And I think that when we are wrestling with pain and suffering in our lives, one of the things that we are supposed to do is sit for hours with the book of Job. Hours. We're meant to dwell in this book, to live in it. We're meant to wrestle with the themes in this book. So it takes us on twists and turns and ins and outs. So as we wrestle through the question, why is this happening? 
We are asked by God in this book, by the way, just a preview of the message to come. We are asked by God to cast our minds out to the farthest reaches of heaven and consider the constellations. We are asked by God to cast our minds to the ends of the earth where all of the wild animals are. And at that point, all the unexplored frontier area of the world where the wild animals are and the far-flung reaches of the ocean and down into the depths of the abyss and thinking about all the things that might be down there. Do we even know what's down there? As we consider this question, why is this happening? God asks us to take a look and get some perspective on the universe and on creation. It takes hours to do that, hours in a single sitting. Your daily quiet time of 15 minutes, which you should do, your daily devotion, your little check-in in the morning, get your verse for the day or whatever, is going to be completely insufficient for your Christian life. You should do it. It's helpful, but it's insufficient. You have to work into your life enough time and space to allow yourself to spend hours wrestling through the questions that this book and the others like it ask. So I wanna, what I want to do is I want to take a pass at laying down some tracks for your reading so that it's a little less intimidating when you go to do that. So let's turn Job chapter 1. The first six verses, we're just introduced to this man named Job. It says he's the greatest of all of the people in the East, which I think means he's some kind of king, some sort of oriental king, this man named Job. Most of the names in the book, by the way, are not Hebrew names. I think that's interesting. It says that Job is blameless and righteous. He's wealthy and pious. It says he's the master of many servants and the steward of many resources. This man was, was well-respected. He was well-liked, well-spoken of, and for all the right reasons. He's kind of a unique sort of person. The Bible doesn't say that very many people are like this. In fact, I think maybe just two. Job and anybody want to take a guess at the second one? Jesus. Righteous. Who do we say? Solomon? That may be true too. Was there another answer? What was it? What's the, no? Good. Whatever. <laughs> You're probably right. I didn't hear you. So first five verses, good. Well and good. There's this king in the east and he has a lot of stuff and everybody likes him. That story so far is not so strange. Verse 6, however, things get a little weird. Let's read it. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on who they are, came to present themselves before the Lord. And the Satan also came in among them. You're going to hear me say the Satan. I'll probably back off to the more familiar Satan. But there's a definite article in the Hebrew here, and it's kind of like capital S. The word Satan means adversary, and it's sort of like this is his first name. Capital A, adversary. The adversary, the Satan, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth. That's what Satan sounds like, by the way. From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? And the Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? I mean, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and everything that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But 
stretch out your hand to touch all the, that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, all right, go for it. He says, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then the Satan wipes out all of Job's possessions, all of his children, and all but three of his servants. And what's interesting about this, if you look at the geography of all of this, this probably happens over the course of weeks, maybe months. Over here in this part of the land is where he keeps his sheep, and he wipes them all out except one servant, which he lets running go running to tell Job. And it probably takes him maybe a week, two, three, to go get to Job. And then a few days, a few weeks later, he wipes out all of this part of Job's land and leaves only one servant alive so he can get to Job's home. And then a few days, maybe weeks later, he wipes out all of Job's kids and he leaves one servant to go run so that all of the servants show up at the same time at Job's house. Just a little detail when you're, when you're kind of going slow through the text. You go, wait, actually, that's interesting. He did this over the course of multiple weeks so that everyone could show up at the same time and tell Job all at once. I'm going to pause here for a moment and comment on something that I think should uh, give us days of pondering as we read this. What in the world is going on? Why is God allowing Satan to come into the courtroom, let alone speak to him, let alone question him, And then God says, okay, fine, go wipe out all his stuff and all his kids. That's weird. If you're familiar with the Bible, I think we're just kind of like, well, that's just what happened. That's not weird. That's just what happened. But God's saying, okay, fine. Wipe it all out. Go kill his children. Go do it. Just don't touch him. That's super weird. And I think that we're meant to live with that strangeness while we're reading 42 chapters. We should like experience like, whoa, whoa, what? God just said, sure, fine, go kill all his kids. Huh? And then even more strange, I think, is Job's response. Look at chapter one, verse 20. Job arose, tore his clothes, shaved his head, fell on the ground. Okay, so... That's a pretty normal response. Job, 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 all of your stuff just got demolished and all of your kids are dead. Tear the robe, shave the head, fall on the ground. That's the understandable response. But then it says, and he worshiped. That's weird. He worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's weird. That's a strange response to me. That's probably not how I would have responded. Satan's plot failed. Remove all of Job's possessions and he'll curse you to his face. What happened? Remove all of Job's kids and possessions and he still remains a worshiper of the Lord. So Satan asks for a second shot. Take away his health and see what happens then. And God, again, says, go for it. 
And Job is devastated. Let's read verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, He's in your hand, but spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome swords from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his reply. So, verse 9. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil? And then the narrator comes in after both of Job's replies, and he takes time to note that Job's replies to the situation were flawless. In all this, he did not sin with his lips. So reader, when a narrator steps in and says, that was the right response, we should underline the verse. Shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil from God? So another layer. We're only two chapters in and we're neck deep in what is happening. And Job is left alone to suffer. We have a little clue later on in one of his speeches that he suffered alone for months in this condition. It says, months of suffering were appointed for me, he says in a few ten chapters in or so. And then his friends show up. Verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, and notice that the book, isn't this interesting? The book says evil came upon him. I think that's important to note. This book says that the stuff that happened to Job was evil. They came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite, And they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and to comfort him. And then they saw him from a distance. They didn't even recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward the heaven. And they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Wow, a week. A week-long hospital visit in complete silence. These were good dudes. These were good friends. Think think of the relationship you'd need to have with somebody to sit with them for a week in silence while they were in agony and mourning. I think we're kind of meant to look at that and go, boy, I wish I had a friend that would sit with me for a week in silence while I mourn. For most of us, probably all of us, we don't have that person. And I think it's meant to raise our antenna a little bit. I wish I had that too. So I'm foreshadowing something that's coming, okay? These are good friends. I think it's, it, we like to throw Job's friends under the bus when we talk about Job's friends because we know what they say for the next 29 chapters and what kind of idiots they are, right? But we always ah, Job's friends, blah, blah, blah. And we skip over the fact that these were good guys, close friends. They were doing the right thing. They sat with him in silence for an entire week, day and night. 
Then Job opens his mouth. And he kicks off the meat of the book. 29 chapters by cursing the day he was born. It would have been better for me never to have been born than to be in this situation. I wonder how many of you have ever felt like that. It would have been better if I would never have been born. Rest assured, the very first character and the very first piece of scripture that was ever written to people had that experience. And what follows in the 29 chapters is this epic argument. Epic. And if you think it took a while to go through uh, two chapters, just now I'm going to skip right through 29, so don't worry. I think we can all relate to this argument as well. The friends who had so dutifully been sitting there mourning with him, now that Job's opened his mouth, they get a glimpse into what's going on in his head and they feel compelled to respond. Okay, Job just said, it would be better if I'd never been born. He says a lot more eloquently than that. And then, uh, and then they speak up and go, well, actually, Job, <laughs> well, actually, I, I think we're meant to relate to the friends here, the three friends. Um, I... I find myself like uh, sympathizing with their reaction. Somebody's in great suffering and then they say something that's just not quite right. And you go, ah, well, you might want to rethink that, actually. Let's reframe that a little bit here, Job. These guys are trying to be helpful. They're trying to help their friend. Job has finally spoken. They get a window in his mind. So now, okay, now I can jump in and help fix it because I see where he's going. So what they do for 29 chapters, there's three cycles to this argument, by the way, three cycles, okay? And they, for 29 chapters, they're trying to be helpful. And so they start offering what kind of amount to trite theological platitudes. You know, Job, God never gives you more than you can handle. That kind of thing, right? Some of the things that they say are true, correct, theologically correct. Some of the things they say are theologically correct and well-timed. Some of the things that they say are theologically correct and very, very poorly timed, some of the things they say are just manifestly false. And some of the things they say are actually heresy. I'm not going to go into detail. And I think for a long time when I'd read Job, I'd try to puzzle through what was what. And can I underline and use this one? How am I supposed to deal with these 29 chapters? But I think what we're supposed to do with those 29 chapters is just relate. I'm kind of like that guy. That's the kind of way I tend to try to be helpful and fail. That's, I'm kind of like these guys. And at each pass in the three cycles of the argument, Job goes, no, that's false. That's not right. No, that's not right. In fact, he goes more and more confident of his position, of his premises. And, uh, and then at one point he actually says, uh, you guys are worthless physicians. You are being completely unhelpful to me. And he's right. And I, I think the way that the poetry is structured, by the way, like it's, that statement is, is sent in like, kind of like a climax of an argument. So we know like, th by the way, guys, what you were supposed to do with the last six chapters is just realize this is unhelpful. <laughs> okay? Job, Job has this argument structure that he goes through in these 29 chapters. He's got five major premises that he holds on to that are correct, okay? So he's got five truths. First one is that God is totally in control of everything that has happened to him so far. He would not be surprised if he got to see into chapter one and two the heavenly situation. 
It wouldn't have surprised him. He knows God is in control. Number two, he knows that God is right and just in everything that he does. He never questions God's righteousness or justice. And by the way, these five things, now that you've seen them all at once here, God actually cares what's going on. He sees me. He knows what's happening and he cares about it. I'm innocent. Job, Job knows that he didn't do anything to deserve this. In fact, that's the thing the friends keep throwing at him. Like, hey, maybe you did something to deserve this. No, it's nothing. In fact, hey, if you were reading chapter one, God actually says I'm innocent. <laughs> so we know also from the narrator's perspective that Job's innocent. Job doesn't know that God said that, but he knows it. He knows he's innocent, and he also knows that this suffering is actually happening. I think part of what his friend's argument are, hey, settle down. It's not as bad as you're making it out to be. You're kind of overreacting. You know, maybe some of this is in your head. And he goes, no, this is happening. This actually is happening. And these five points leave Job completely confused. These five things are all true, and I have no idea how they can all be true at the same time, but they are. And the whole purpose of him spinning up this argument is, Lord, what is happening? I don't understand. And I wonder how many of you can relate to that in your life. Lord, what is going on? I don't get it. And I think, by the way, for 29 chapters, we're just meant to relate to this conversation. We're meant to relate to being one of the friends who's offering unhelpful advice and they keep arguing with us. <laughs> and we're meant to relate to Job having people throw unhelpful advice at us and it's not helping and being completely confused about, three, about these five things we know to be true. In the three cycles of the argument, he gets more and more confused and more and more irate at his friends and a little bit more angsty toward God. None of what he's experiencing makes any sense to him. These five things don't fit together. And his friends are trying to argue with these five points. And I think namely, uh, number four, primarily, or number three, as well. Because you're just, who are you, Job? Who do you think you are that God cares about your individual plight? That's one of the things that they say. And then the other thing that they say is you must have done something because God doesn't let bad things happen to good people, obviously. Everyone knows that. So they try to poke holes at number three and four. And Job, he has no idea why this is happening to them. This stuff is happening to him. In the three cycles of the argument, he gets more and more confused, more and more irate at God. His friends are trying to argue uh, that the premises are incorrect. And, and don't let me, like, I'm blazing through 29 chapters here. It takes you hours to read through this. You're meant to spend hours in this conundrum. I think that's something for our soul. The, way God, the reason God gave us a book is because it's slow. Reading is slow. It takes time, right? I'm trying to summarize this for you in 45, 50, maybe 60 minutes. I'm trying to summarize 42 chapters because we just need a summary quick, Matt. Well, actually, yeah, I want to give you a summary so that you can read it and spend hours being confused by these five things and the arguments that Job's friends are throwing at him. In the course of the argument, Job is like, what is happening? And his friends are like, maybe it's this. And Job goes, no, that's not it. Lord, what's happening? And his friend goes, maybe this is happening. Job goes, that's not it. Lord, what is happening? His friend goes, maybe, maybe it's this. That's not it. And Job is right, and they're wrong. Pretty easy. And as a matter of fact, the whole structure of the poetry here is really interesting, by the way. Poetry is a little sidebar. Poetry, the reason, uh, so some scholars think that this might be like a fairy tale or a fable. Um, Job might be not actually 
It might be based on actual events, but not an actual narrative record of history. And I disagree with them. And here's why. Um, one is that Jesus, uh, later prophets in the Old Testament and James uh, thought, talked about Job like he was a real guy. So we should think that. <laughs> that's, that's actually the only reason you need. But one of the strongest premises they have is like, well, the whole thing is structured and it has rhyme and meter and stuff. And obviously no one talked like that. And I'm like, have you ever heard a rap battle? <laughs> so I think that's what's going on here. I think he's having an epic rap throwdown with his four friends. But there's something interesting to the construction here in the cycle. And by the way, we don't know that people didn't talk like that. In fact, we have some evidence that when there was a formal debate happening, that they actually thought about what they were saying instead of tweeting it out on their phone. You know, they actually took time to construct their argument and say it eloquently. They had more time back then or something like that. I don't know. But the very, very structure is very interesting. Three cycles through. Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad takes his turn, speaks, Job responds. Zohar speaks, Job responds. Cycle two, Eliphaz ratches it up a little bit from maybe you did something wrong too. Well, you definitely did something wrong. So Eliphaz speaks and Job responds. Bildad takes a second shot, Job responds. Zohar speaks again, Job responds. Cycle three, Eliphaz steps up and goes, okay, Job, you are a murderer, you are a thief. He starts accusing Job actually with, with actual tactical things that Job did to the widow and the orphan and the starving, the needy, the helpless the slave, the sojourner. So you did these things. He starts falsely accusing Job of sin. Does that remind you of anybody? And Job responds and maintains his innocence. Bildad steps up. Argument three, Job has done such a masterful job of crushing everything so far. Bildad only gets nine verses in and Job responds and crushes him. And Zohar steps up and goes, I got nothing. He gets no third argument. And Job still responds to him. He crushes the arguments. The friends become more and more accusatory from maybe you did something wrong. Job just confess it. It's all right. It's come out with it. It's probably something small. You're a good dude. All the way up to accusing him of murder and thievery. And Job crushes their flawed theology that God only brings suffering to the unrighteous. Job clings to his innocence. He clings to God's absolute control. He clings to the fact that God is good and cares. But he also clings to his confusion about what's happening. And he actually oversteps. He starts to take one step over the edge and Elihu steps in. So I'm going to stop you right there, Job. This guy Elihu comes in. Job is about ready to overplay his self-defense, overstate where things are going. He starts to say, God, you have your arrow set on me. You're out to get me. And Elihu says, I'm going to stop you right there. Elihu is interesting, by the way. I, for a long time, I didn't really know what to do with Elihu. I really, really resonated in chapter 33 when Elihu steps in. He says, all right, I listened to all the old dudes speak, and I didn't hear any wisdom. So listen up. I really loved that as a 20-something and a 30-something. I, I loved it when Elihu kind of bashes all the old guys and, and says, I've got some wisdom that you are obviously missing. Um, so uh, I didn't know what to do with him for a long time. Commentaries are kind of divided on whether Elihu is just a fourth friend, 
like Zophar, Bildad, and, and tell, to, what's his name? The other one, Elihu. No, Elihu's a good one. Zophar, the Temanite. Bildad, the Shua, and Eliphaz. Ah, never mind, don't worry about it. Zophar's a Namathite. That's really important. Um, Elihu, they're divided on whether he's just number four of the wrong guys, who's now this youthful guy is coming in and just making a fool of himself because God doesn't even bother to answer him. Or where I stand is that Elihu is a bit like John the Baptist. And he comes in and he says, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to prevent you from taking one step too far, Job. And I'm going to tell you the truth. And that we are meant to listen to what Elihu says. And when we do, we get the Bible's answer to the problem of pain and suffering. Part of the reason I think Elihu is correct is because Job does not respond to him. God does not, God corrects the first three, he does not correct Elihu. And the narrative goes from, the, I'm sorry, the dialogue goes from Elihu speaking seamlessly into God speaking. So I think he's like Elijah, and I think he's like John the Baptist. He's a forerunner prophet of God. Job 33, verse 8. Elihu also does something else that none of the other three friends did. He said, Job, I've heard you speak. Verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my ears. I heard the sound of your words. And then he repeats Job's argument back to him, something the other three friends did not do. Here's what I hear you saying, Job. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. That's your basic argument. You're maintaining your integrity. And then he says, and you're also saying, behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy and he puts my feet in the stocks and he watches in all my paths. Am I hearing you correctly, Job? Would be about how that goes. And I think it divides out like this. He says, I hear you saying these two things. You're innocent and God's out to get me. And then he says in the next verse, behold, in this second one, you are not right. And I think that because God actually affirms this first one. God says he's holy and blameless, upright. The second part, God's out to get me. Elihu says, behold, you are not right that God is out to get you. I will answer you. God is greater than man. So I'm in uh, chapter 33, verses 8 through 14 here. God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of my words? That's Job's basic argument. Answer me, Lord. Why is this happening? Answer me. And Bildad is saying, you're wanting an answer and saying that he's not answering. And he says, God does speak in one way and in two, though man may not perceive it. This is important. He tells Job, you're not correct that God is not answering you. That's a turning point in the whole text. Elihu goes on to tell Job, and therefore us, how God does speak and answer that question. Why? Verse 15. God does speak in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it, in a dream. So this is number one. In a dream, 
in a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on men and they slumber in their beds and he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings so that he may turn aside from his deeds and conceal and he might conceal pride from the man. He keeps his soul back from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Verse 18. This is important. Elihu is describing the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting our souls of sin. That's what's going on here. He's terrifying us with the consequence of our sin, the unrest in us when the Holy Spirit confronts us with our sin and convicts us of our sin and helps us through the work of regeneration to see it. He confronts us with the reality of our sin and the reality of our judgment. He keeps his soul back from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. He's also speaking about revelation here, which is important to understand that in Job's day was usually, Hebrews 1 tells us in, in Job's day was usually supernatural through the prophets. And by the way, Job is one and so is Elihu, we find out in James. In our day, those prophets have been recorded for us. I think this is important. The times that God spoke audibly to men in no uncertain terms were recorded for us in the scriptures. And so the way we get this kind of warning now is, I think, the Holy Spirit working on us and convicting us and causing that terror in us. But the clear messages comes through the words of the scripture and comes from evangelism from believers sharing the gospel message with us, including myself to you tonight. Evangelism is important because you might be the answer to somebody's itchy soul. Why is this happening to me? Verse 19. Number two, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. Elihu is describing the purpose of physical suffering in the world. He says, loathing bread and choicest food. And, he's, and this is used to re- represent a lot of our physical appetites. This is a good way of saying that God uses pain and suffering to loosen our grip on the things of this world and our reliance on them and finding satisfaction and fulfillment in the things of this world, whether that's bread or money or power or fame or even personal relationships, those sorts of things. So I want to say that if you're finding yourself troubled with thoughts and if that description of terror, you know, terror on your bed at night and pain on your bed with continual strife in your bones is resonating with you, it may be that God is trying to get your attention. C.S. Lewis in that book, again on the table, Problem of Pain, God often uses pain as a megaphone to get our attention. And that's what, this is where he got it. Elihu is saying this. Listen to this, verse 22. This is a little complicated because it's poetic, but follow me here for a second. This man who's being terrified with pain and with uh, dreams and visions in the night... His soul is drawing near the pit, and his uh, life is drawing near to those who bring death. Now, if there be for him a messenger, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to a man what is right, instead of the terror that is wrong, by the way, implication, and that mediator is merciful to him, 
and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have a ransom. Isn't that interesting? First scripture delivered to man thousands of years before Jesus Christ talks about the need for a messenger, a mediator, and a ransom for our sin. If that happens, it says, 25, let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then the man prays to God. God accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man righteousness and he sings before men, the man, the man who's been redeemed. I have sinned and I have perverted what is right and it was not repaid to me. This man has an accurate understanding of his situation before the Father and it leads to evangelism. My testimony I have perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. That is the fruit that comes out of my understanding, my situation before the Lord. Interesting. And just in case we're not sure what Elihu's point is in everything he said so far, he sums it up very nicely in verse 29 and 30. He says this, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man. In other words, repeatedly sometimes to bring his soul back from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. God does bring suffering into our life and he does it to spare our soul from the pit and turn us toward the light of life. This world can't save you, he's saying. Look at the pain and suffering it's bringing you. Your answer is not here. Your answer is with a mediator and a ransom who will spare your soul from the pit. I have an observation here that I think is important. Look at verse 29. God does these things with a man. And man, by the way, way, is a gender-neutral word, a man or woman, a person. It's not actually gender-neutral. It's the the all-inclusive male, masculine, if that makes sense. This is part of language. Men. This is important. Throughout this entire book, 42 chapters about the problem of pain and suffering, not once do any of the three friends, even in their bad theology, not once with Job, who is coming up with every possible explanation of what might be going on, not once with the prophet of God, Elihu, nor not once with chapters of God explaining things, do any, does anyone bring up what is the most popular explanation for the problem of pain and suffering that we have in our culture today? They don't even mention it. It's not even in their minds. And that conception is that somehow God is not in control. That somehow he, he loses his control and stand by, stands by to passively allow. Can't, I can't control that because free will. Now hear me for a second. I'm not saying free will doesn't exist. It does. Hear me say clearly, free will exists. But the answer to the problem is of pain and suffering is not that that free will somehow necessitates that God not interfere sometimes. That's not the way it is. We have an explanation that in order for true love to exist, free will has to exist. I have a very complicated denial of that statement. We could talk later if you'd like. And because free will exists so that love can exist, there are some things that God just can't do. 
So therefore, suffering has to happen. That is not the explanation that the Bible gives to the problem of pain and suffering. Even when you have 29 chapters of bad theological explanation for why this problem. They don't even, it does not, it's not even in their heads, this idea. It is a Renaissance, Enlightenment, humanist idea. I just wanted to say that clearly. Scripture says that God doesn't merely stand by and passively allow and watch, but he does it. If you hold the view that the reason pain and suffering happens is because free will somehow and true love or something like that, you will never find a satisfactory answer to the problem of pain and suffering. It is too flimsy of a foundation. One, because it's not the answer the Bible gives. And two, because it's not the answer the Bible gives. Go home and check that with your pastor if you like. It's complicated. All the speakers in this book know that God is absolutely in control of every moment of Job's suffering. Job knows that, and he still thinks God is good and right and cares and is just. Job's friends know that. They didn't even try to bother. They didn't even bother with that line of argumentation. Satan could not have touched a hair on Job's head apart from God's command. Go for it. Just don't touch him. And I want to say that this is probably the hardest truth to chew on in the entire book. And until you wrestle with this, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of guessing that this answer to the problem of pain and suffering actually is less satisfying <laughs> and it's going to cause more problems in your soul because it's going to root out some very human ways of thinking, some very fleshly ways of thinking. You will never have a satisfactory answer to the problem. Hardest truth to chew on in the entire book. And this truth is at the root of Job's confusion and argument. He's asking God, why? Then why, Lord? Then why? And we're supposed to, with Job, ask that question for a couple hours while we read the book with him. Job asks for an answer, why? And God gives him one. Elihu and God's speeches almost blend together. In their, in their context. For the next five chapters, we have wave after wave after wave of truth crashing over our souls, reminding us of God's greatness, reminding us of his vast power, of his absolute perfect knowledge of everything that's happening everywhere, all the time, in the entire universe. Do you know the constellations? Who brings them out by night and puts them away by day? Do you know how that happens? No, I do. His absolute command and control over the minutest details of life, how things get stitched together in the womb, his initiating and creative power in the foundation of the world, his restraining power of the oceans in the dry land. Can Job, can you say, hey, ocean, come this far and no farther? No, I can. That's what he says. His determining power over the course of the earth, the sun, the moons, and the stars, I put them in motion in this way for a reason. His providing power of the rain and the snow and the hail. Do you know where the hail's kept, Job? I got it. I know where it is. Do you know where the rain comes from or how to make it happen? No, I do. You pray to me to make it happen, don't you? Do you know where the snow comes from? I do. I know where it comes from. 
and his caring power for all the wild animals. This is my favorite part. Hey, Job, you know the ostrich? It's a dumb bird, isn't it? It steps on its eggs and it has no idea what's going on at any moment of time in its life. Do you know why that's the case? No, you don't. I do. I know why that bird is so dumb. I made it that way for a reason. Why did I make it that way? You don't know, do you? I do. I know why I made it that way. The donkey that won't obey any of your commands. Doesn't that frustrate you? Do you know why it won't obey any of your commands? No, you don't, do you? I know why it won't, and I can make it obey me. Now, here's the thing. When I give this explanation, you got to walk carefully through this. God's absolutely in control of everything that happens all the time. The answer always, every conversation I've ever had with this, at some point, somebody says, then God is just mean. Have you ever thought that? I'm angry at him. How could he have made it this way? I think we get afraid because we know he has all this power. We know he knows everything. We know he created everything. We know he controls everything. But what if he's mean? What if he wields this power randomly like my dad did or like I do sometimes? What if he's not careful in the things? What if he forgets about me like my friends sometimes do? What if he's actually unjust sometimes? What if he doesn't care about me? Because sometimes it doesn't feel like it. And unless we get stuck there, he clarifies for us in the very next breath how he uses that power. Chapter 40, verse 7. Job, put your pants on. Dress for action like a man. I'm going to question you. Make it known to me. Are you going to try to put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you can be right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like God's? Then try it. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Let me summarize. Job, if you can wield all of the glory and splendor and majesty and power that I have and do it righteously, then we can talk. But what do we know about power when humans wield it? It's not in the Bible. I think you can show it from the Bible, but absolute power does what? It corrupts. All of the great stories tell us so. I think the Bible shows us what happens in, with Lamech in early Genesis. Job, if you can wield the power I wield, the wisdom I wield, the glory and majesty that I have, and you can pour out your wrath in a direction that causes the proud to be humbled and the wicked to be brought to justice, 
then we can talk. But you wouldn't do that, would you? Is his answer. And he goes on about the behemoth and the leviathan. And here's where it gets really weird. This, he describes these monsters, these great beasts, which the commentators say is an alligator and a hippopotamus because they have zero imagination. I'm sorry, the hippopotamus's tail is a little waggly thing. It's not like a rod of iron. The alligator doesn't breathe fire. You can pierce an alligator's hide with a spear, which is you can't do to Le- Leviathan, or Leviathan, right? Have you ever seen Crocodile Dundee? I mean, he pushes that knife right in its neck, you know. You can pierce the skin of a crocodile. Those commentators have no imagination. He's talking about dragons. Slash dinosaurs, whatever, fine. But the Bible says that the dinosaurs breathed fire. The most terrifying beasts you can imagine. He says, you can't control them, can you? You're terrified of them. I not only created in them, but I delight in them, and I am in absolute control of them. Isn't that amazing, Job? And then he says, trust me. You can trust me. I've got this. Don't fear. Don't worry. I've got all of that. I've got you. I've got this. And Job repents. Good verse 42. Or chapter 42, verse 1. Job answers the Lord and he says, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's pointing to himself. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. (laughs) I have heard you now by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job's showing us the right response to to God's display of what we call God's glory. Everything I just got in yelling about with the ostriches and the universe and the constellations and the Leviathan, that's God's glory. I need to wrap up here. Thanks for bearing with me. All this revelation, all this revelation about who God is and the power that he has leads Job to a quiet trust in whatever God has allotted for him. Elihu comes along and he says, suffering happens so that God gets your attention. That's point one, why suffering happens. Elihu comes along and he says, suffering happens so that God can get your attention. And God comes along and he says, and the reality is bigger than you understand. That's the summary. Elihu and Job, one-two punch. Suffering happens so that God can get your attention. And God says, and the reality is bigger than you get, than you understand. There's more going on than you understand. This is bigger than what you understand. And God never tells Job why he suffered. We get to see from our vantage point in the narrative what's going on in the heavenly realms and what God is doing, proving that worship happens even apart from physical prosperity. Job never gets to see it. He just quietly trusts. This is significant. I have a feeling that if Job would have been tuned into the spiritual reality from the beginning, he wouldn't have complained at all whatsoever. 
In fact, I think Job says this, Job 31, 35 through 37, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let, let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had my indictment, indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of everything that I've done. Like a prince, I would approach him. God, I wish you would hear me. I wish it were written down. <laughs> it is in the book of Job. It's all written down here. God doesn't offer Job a simple explanation because he's out to show the watching world, all of Job's friends, and all the heavenly reality, the sons of God and the Satan. He's out to show the genuineness of Job's faith in response to God's holiness. The accusation that the Satan brought at the very beginning of the book was that no one will worship God sheerly for God's sake alone. God offers the perfect test in full confidence that Job's faithfulness and perseverance and right response to God's revelation will bring him through, and he crushes the snake. Job's a prophet. He's a type of Christ. Does this sound familiar for a second? I want to show you something. What the book of Job says about Job himself. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible of whom this is true? One, point one. God calls Job righteous, the righteous one out of the entire earth. That's the first point. Righteous one out of the entire earth. Point two. God points him out as his faithful servant with whom he is well pleased. He's pointed out as a faithful servant. He's tested by Satan. He suffered pain and sorrow undeservedly. He was disfigured beyond recognition by the sores and boils. He had no worldly possessions during the course of this test. He was faithful and sinless in that test. He cries out to God, deliver me. He had friends with really bad theology. He's falsely accused of wrongdoing of sin. He, he prays for his sinful friends so that they can be restored, and he's exalted after successfully passing the trial. I thought of one more this morning when I was reviewing these notes. At the very beginning, he offers a sacrifice for his children for sins not yet committed. Interesting. Does that remind you of anybody? It's supposed to. Jesus. That's Jesus. Typology in the Bible is something God uses. It's a tact, it's a label we've given to something God does with all of these heroes. It tells us what kind of hero to expect, who to look for, what kind of things to be on the lookout for, what the life of a righteous servant of God will probably look like. And Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of that test. We have an opportunity then to follow Job's example as he follows Christ's example. So that's why we say, follow Christ, put him on, do what he did. That's what following Christ is about. Job, was restored, Job had everything restored to him, verse, verse seven, 42, verse 17. Job died, an old man, full of old days. He lived happily ever after. Uh, it's really interesting. He had everything that was taken away from him restored double. I think that's interesting, at least double, which is the old covenant uh, command for anything that was wrongly taken away. This book leaves us longing for hope of something more. Even the reward that Job was given on this planet was temporary. His sheep all died again. His kids eventually all died again. Didn't they? But Job, in the middle of, of, of chapter 19, right in the center of the book, right in the center, says something that he clung on to in terms of hope in the middle of his arguments, toward all, the way, all, the way toward the, all the way to the end. He says this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end... 
I, he will stand on the earth after my skin has been destroyed and my flesh, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Job believed in the resurrection. I will see him for myself. My eyes will behold and my heart faints within me. James tells us in, in chapter 5, we get to see behind the curtain. Job was a prophet. We saw the purposes of the Lord. He was an example to us of steadfastness. We get to see the big picture. We get to see the full revelation of God. He's given us in the Bible. We get to tune into what God is up to in the universe. The first scripture we have is that there's something bigger than our life going on here. And God intimately cares about ours in the process, but he's proving something through your life that goes beyond this life. So we can cling to that in hope. We can look at Job as an example of how to suffer well, but we can look through him forward to the perfect sufferer and advocate who stands before God. In all of this trial, Job was like, hey God, I would put you on the stand to ask you questions, but I need somebody to advocate for me because I know I can't question you. But we have that advocate in Christ, don't we? He was the perfect sufferer, the perfect advocate. He stands before the king and pays for our unrighteousness. We have hope through Jesus. Would you pray with me? Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.